Hello, this is Empires and Civilizations. Episode 9, Uthman, Ali, and Civil War. In early November 644, Umar ibn al-Khattab passed away. On his deathbed, Umar created a six-man council that would determine his successor. This group consisted of Ali, Uthman, Abdurrahman ibn Auf, Saad ibn Abi Waqqas, Azubair ibn al-Awam, and Talha ibn Ubaydullah. All of these men were not only some of Muhammad's closest companions, they were all members of the Blessed Ten, that inner circle of Muhammad's companions that were promised paradise after death. Thus, all of these men were some of the most important people in Muslim society at the time. After Umar was buried, the council began lengthy deliberations. When the council first started meeting, Talha was absent, so he was represented by Umar's son Abdullah, but did not participate in the voting process. Abdurrahman agreed to use his house as the council's meeting place. In addition, he withdrew his eligibility in order to inquire as to how every other candidate would vote. Thus, the decision came down to Ali, Uthman, Saad, and Azubair. Eventually, two candidates rose to the forefront, Uthman and Ali. Both candidates were interviewed as if it was a presidential debate. In the end, the election was decided by one question, quote, do you pledge to stick to the glorious book of Allah, the sunnah of his messenger, and the laid-down principles of the two caliphs who followed him?" Sunnah simply means the traditions and customs practiced by Muhammad, just so you know. While Uthman answered yes, Ali answered no. Ali argued that he wanted to act according to his best knowledge, but it might have been that answer that cost him the election. When the final votes came in, Ali, Azubair, and Saad voted for Uthman, well, only Uthman voted for Ali, and so Uthman became the third Rashidun Caliph. At this point, you probably know the drill. I'm going to present a biography of Uthman up until now. Born in 579, Uthman bin Affan was born into the Banu Umayyah, or Umayyad family, which was one of the elite Quraysh families that controlled Mecca during the Jahiliya. It was said that he was extremely handsome. Uthman was one of the few literate Meccans, and starting from a young age, he became a successful merchant and businessman. Though he was wealthy, his modesty and humility made him unique among the Meccan community. Even before his conversion to Islam, he used his wealth to assist the needy. It was said that Uthman never did anything obscene or prostrated before idols during the Jahiliya. Uthman converted to Islam upon the insistence of Abu Bakr, who was one of Uthman's closest friends. Uthman then declared his conversion to Muhammad. After Uthman's conversion, the Quraysh who were once his allies became his enemies. Even some of his relatives chastised him. Uthman earned the title Owner of the Two Lights, referring to the fact that he was the only man to marry two daughters of Muhammad. The first, Rukhaya, had divorced from the son of a man who was openly against Islam. Rukhaya fell ill shortly before the Battle of Badr, so instead of fighting at Badr, Uthman was excused to look after her. Unfortunately, Rukhaya died after the battle. Seeing that Uthman was deeply grieved by the loss of Rukhaya, Muhammad offered another daughter, Umm Kulthum. Umm Kulthum lived with Uthman until the former's death in 630. Uthman was widely praised as a scholar. As I mentioned before, he was one of the few Muslims to be literate, which was why Muhammad appointed Uthman as one of his scribes. In addition, Uthman was a hafiz, meaning that he committed the entire Quran to memory, and such a position demonstrated Uthman's knowledge of Islamic law. This was why Umar often consulted Uthman throughout Umar's reign. 
When Uthman became caliph, he instituted a number of new policies, although not as much as Umar, including giving Muslims plots of land in the newly conquered territories to cultivate, expanding the size of the Prophet's mosque in Medina, and allocating funds to prayer callers. However, perhaps Uthman's most famous policy was the codification of the Quran. Technically, Abu Bakr had an official copy, but the codification was completed during Uthman's reign. The issue is that by now, as people in the newly conquered territories were converting to Islam, they began reciting the Quran in different ways due to their differences in writing Arabic, which of course was the language of the Quran. Uthman delegated the task to his scribe, Zaid ibn Tabit, who, with the help of other companions, created multiple copies. Then, Uthman ordered any other copies to be burnt and destroyed. And under Uthman's reign, the conquests continued. The Byzantines, taking advantage of the political weakness following Umar's assassination, had occupied several Lebanese ports. Uthman's governor of Syria, Muawiyah, quickly retook the ports, refortified them, and garrisoned them. We know that Muawiyah ordered a few campaigns into Byzantine-controlled Anatolia. Cilicia, a region in southeast Anatolia, was overrun several times, but it would never be permanently occupied until later. Muawiyah's main focus was Armenia. In Armenia and Azerbaijan, there was a rebellion against the Caliphate. Uthman ordered his governor of Kufa, Al-Walid bin Uqba, to deal with the matter, and Al-Walid succeeded. At the same time, in 645 or 646, Muawiyah sent an army led by Habib bin Maslama, a general who distinguished himself in Syria and Mesopotamia, to Armenia to confront the Byzantines. Habib captured Theodosopolis, the capital of Byzantine Armenia, after a short siege. He then defeated a Byzantine army reinforced by the Khazars and Alans. Habib was free to move towards Lake Van, where he received the submission of local princes. While Habib captured Duin, the former capital of Persian Armenia, Salman ibn Rabia, working from the east, captured Caucasian Armenia and its capital, Ardaha. Three years later, the Kurds rose in rebellion, but they too were quickly brought into line. In 645, there was a rebellion in Alexandria, and the Byzantines were able to take control of this city. The evicted Muslims pleaded with Uthman to send back Amr ibn Alas, and after Uthman did that, Amr was able to retake the vital port. Amr had to be sent back because he was replaced as governor by Abdullah ibn Abisar. While Umar had limited westward expansion in North Africa, Uthman gave Abdullah permission to keep going. Abdullah marched towards Tripoli, the principal Byzantine fort, and besieged it. During the siege, Uthman sent reinforcements. Finally, the inhabitants of Libya agreed to negotiate peace and pay jizya. The surrender of Tripoli allowed the Muslims to probe deeper into North Africa. But before I discuss the Muslim conquest of North Africa, I need to discuss some necessary background information first. The death of the Byzantine commander John in the Battle of Heliopolis deeply undermined Byzantine morale, not just in Egypt, but in North Africa. The Byzantines suffered another defeat, not from the Muslims, but from the Lombards. In 643, the Lombard king Rostari invaded Byzantine-controlled Liguria in Italy and captured that strategic territory. The islands of Corsica and Sardinia were vulnerable to raiding, and more importantly, the Byzantines could not use troops in Italy to come to the defense of North Africa. Making matters even worse, Gregory, the Exarch of North Africa, revolted against the Byzantines in 645, which weakened North African defenses. This revolt, lasting until 647, was possibly an attempt to avoid paying taxes to Constantinople. 647 was the same year that the Muslims began invading North Africa. Uthman entrusted Abdullah ibn Abisar, the governor of Egypt, to lead the expedition. 
Abdul advanced from modern-day Libya to modern-day Tunisia, attacking cities along the way. Abdullah attempted to capture the port of Gavis, but he failed to penetrate the city walls and decided to retreat away from the coast. Later in 647, Abdullah met Gregory's army at the Battle of Sufatullah, located in modern-day Tunisia. By moving to Sufatullah, Gregory was hoping to plug the Kasserine Tabessa Gap, which controlled access to the west. Gregory had probably gathered troops from around all parts of Byzantine North Africa, as well as a unit of Moors. However, the Moors turned to flight, paving the way for a Muslim victory. Gregory was killed during the battle. In the aftermath of the Battle of Sufatullah, the Muslims imposed a substantial tribute on the North African population. In 648, after up to 15 months of raiding, the Muslims agreed to withdraw after the payment of tribute. Although North Africa was in shambles, the Muslims would not return for decades, as there were far more pressing political matters closer to home, more on that later. The Byzantines, on the other hand, were leaderless and adopted a strategy of passivity. Previously, Umar was afraid to create a navy, as he was afraid that the Muslims would drown. Uthman approved the creation of the first Muslim navy, which was spearheaded by the governor of Syria, Muawiyah. However, Uthman made recruitment voluntary, so that he could not be blamed if the Muslims were defeated on the seas. By 648, a fleet was assembled. The first shipbuilders and sailors were actually Christians from the Levantine coast. In those days, naval combat mainly consisted of enemy vessels lining up and then sailors fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Given the Muslim skills in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, once they earned their sea legs, the Muslim navy quickly became formidable. The first target of the Muslim navy was the island of Cyprus, located in the eastern Mediterranean. Cyprus, which was controlled by the Byzantines at the time, was a fertile land in agricultural economy. In possibly 647, 648, or 649, two fleets were raised, one in Syria, led by Abdullah ibn Qais, and the other in Alexandria. The people of Cyprus agreed to pay 7,000 dinars annually to the Muslims and an equal amount to the Byzantines, and agreed to fight alongside the Muslims. However, because the Cypriots were paying the Byzantines, they were violating their agreement, causing Muawiyah to launch a second raid in 653 or 654 that succeeded in occupying the island. Muawiyah reimposed the existing tribute and established a garrison of 12,000 troops. The island of Arwad, located off the coast of Syria, was occupied in 649, and its inhabitants were compelled to leave. These naval engagements culminated in the Battle of the Masts, fought off the southern coast of Asia Minor in 655. Many details, including the date, are unclear, so I will tell the version that makes the most sense to me. Constance II recognized the threat the Muslims posed from both the land and sea, so he decided to deal a blow to Muslim naval power. In the years leading up to the battle, Rhodes, Kos, and Crete were sacked by the Muslim navy, making it clear that the Muslims' ultimate target was Constantinople. Constance assembled a fleet of 500 ships, while the Muslims, led by Abdullah ibn Abisar, had 200 ships. During the battle, Constance failed to bring his ships into formation, allowing the Muslims to tear the Byzantine fleet into pieces. According to one Byzantine historian, Constance only escaped this turmoil by dressing up as an ordinary sailor and throwing himself onto another ship. The route to Constantinople was now wide open, though it would take years for the Muslims to exploit it, for reasons you will soon see. Now, let's turn to the east. Although the Muslims won the Battle of Nahavand and successfully conquered Persia, the Sassanid Empire was not yet officially over, and the end of the Sassanid Empire would occur during Uthman's reign. Unfortunately, in Fars, Kirman, Khorasan, and Tabaristan, the local Persians rose up in revolt, and Yazidir returned from Balkh to reclaim the lands that he believed belonged to him. 
Uthman sent two armies, one to deal with the north and one to deal with the south. By late 651, the rebellions were crushed, and Yasadird was once again on the run. Arriving at Merv, which was not yet retaken by the Arabs, Yazadird announced his intention to raise a new army. The Sassanid governor of Merv, Mahawe, prepared to turn against the emperor, yet on Yazadird's arrival, Mahawe made a show of obedience. Yazadird immediately wrote letters to the king of Fergana, emperor of China, and Khan of the Turks. After one month passed, Yazadird began to suspect Mahawe's loyalty, so Mahawe realized that he had to act fast to save himself. He secretly wrote to the Khan of the Turks, claiming that Yazadird was secretly plotting against both of them. Together, they created a plan which they put into motion. The Khan wrote to Yazajird, asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. Yazajird was enraged. How dare the Khan ask for the Emperor's daughter? The Khan was also enraged, so much so that he raised an army and marched for Merv. Yazajird deployed whatever Persian troops were still loyal to him, and at a critical moment in the upcoming battle, Mahawe took his own troops from Merv and joined the Turks, turning the scales against Yazajird. Yazadird fled from the battlefield, but when he arrived at Merv, the local inhabitants refused to open the gate to him. After wandering alone for about seven miles, he came upon a miller's house that he had found to be unoccupied. Exhausted, he slept on the floor. The next day, the miller arrived and was astonished to see such a splendidly dressed man. Still, he agreed to shelter his new guest. The next day, the miller went to the markets in Merv, and as he conversed with the locals, Word spread that the miller knew where the fugitive emperor was. Thus, Yasajid was located and strangled to death, ending the life of the last Sassanid emperor. And so, the Sassanid Empire was officially over. According to tradition, the first six years of Uthman's reign were marked by prosperity, while the last six years were marked by division and turmoil. Legend has it that the turning point was marked by Uthman dropping the seal of Muhammad into a well. During these final six years, a series of unfortunate events would occur that would eventually tear the Muslim community apart. These events can trace their origins to the conquests. Recall that Uthman allowed Muslims to become property owners in the conquered territories. Some Muslim sources claim that because of this decision, Uthman inadvertently allowed Muslims to become corrupted by material desires. In fact, many upper-tier Muslims migrated from Medina to other cities, forming regional aristocracies. These Muslims gained supporters from those who wished to gain power, thus challenging the authority of the Caliph. More opposition was caused by Uthman's order to destroy copies of the Quran in the provinces. Although Uthman intended to maintain religious unity, there were those who sincerely believed that Uthman wanted to destroy the divine word. Tensions came to a head when hundreds of delegates from the provinces rushed to Medina, demanding that Uthman be ousted and replaced. The people of Basra wanted Azubair to be the new Caliph, the people of Kufa wanted Talha to be the new caliph, and the people of Egypt wanted Ali to be the new caliph. All three men were companions of Muhammad that had been pushed out of power. Part of the public discontent was directed towards Uthman's governors. You see, Uthman was a member of the Umayyads, and during his reign, he appointed members of his own family to important posts. Abdullah ibn Abisar, Uthman's foster brother, was made governor of Egypt. Muawiyah ibn Abu Sufyan, Uthman's cousin, was made governor of Syria. Marwan bin Hakam, another of Uthman's cousins, became Uthman's secretary. Uthman's other relatives became governors of other provinces. While Uthman may have intended to choose governors that would be loyal to him, many accused him of nepotism. Uthman himself was also accused of confiscating the property of Muslims for his own benefit. At around the same time Uthman lost Muhammad's seal, the first revolts were flaring up. 
In Iraq, a certain Abu Dar led a revolt that was defeated, and Abu Dar was exiled to Syria. This was nothing compared to an uprising in Kufa during 652 to 654, at the end of which Uthman's appointed governor, Sa'id ibn al-As, was replaced by the former governor of Basra, Abu Musa al-Ashari. For a long time, Kufa would remain beyond the caliph's sphere of influence. In Egypt, Uthman's appointed governor, Abdullah ibn Abisar, was forced to step down and yield power to Muhammad ibn Abi Hudayfa. Uthman sent four delegates to various provinces in order to discover the source of the grievances. The delegates sent to Basra, Kufa, and Syria reported that there were no real reasons behind these grievances. However, the delegates sent to Egypt abandoned Uthman and joined the opposition. Uthman wanted to ensure that the conclusions the first three delegates presented were true, so he announced to all the provinces that those who wanted to lodge a complaint could do so in Mecca during the Hajj. In 655, when the Hajj came, as all the Muslims completed their rituals and returned to the provinces, they addressed their complaints. Uthman attempted to win over those who complained, and while some Muslims accepted Uthman's views, others were unsatisfied. Knowing this, Uthman decided to discuss the situation with his governors, who advised him to strictly punish those who advocated sedition. But the tender-hearted Uthman ordered his governors to give the people their rights. Did they listen? No. Muawiyah, realizing the situation was getting increasingly out of hand, invited Uthman to come to Syria, but Uthman refused to leave Medina. In 656, as much as 1,000 people each from Basra, Kufa, and Egypt went to perform the Hajj, but they actually had a secret mission. They really wanted a request from the Caliph that he remove his governors, and if he would not do so willingly, they would forcefully convince him. The Egyptians, under the command of Abdul Rahman ibn Hudais, arrived first, and they wanted to address Uthman about their grievances. Words are dramatically exchanged, but Uthman eventually promised to repeal all his previous measures and change his governors. Satisfied, the Egyptians started to return to their province, but when they reached El Arish, they stopped a messenger bearing a letter from Uthman. The letter was addressed by Uthman to Abdullah ibn Abisar to put the Egyptian delegates to death upon their return. It became obvious that Uthman did not mean what he said. Furious, the Egyptians returned to Medina. Uthman denied that the letter was authentic and even claimed that it was forged by his enemies. Whether or not this was true, the Egyptians were having none of it and besieged Uthman's house. During the siege, Uthman refused to abdicate, but one day, a group led by Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr, son of the first caliph, managed to enter Uthman's house in June 656. While he was reading the Quran, Uthman was murdered by the sword. It was said that his blood stained the holy text. Uthman's wife attempted to protect her husband, but she was injured and the house was ransacked. During that night, the caliph was buried in secrecy. His funeral was attended only by his wife and a few close friends. Once again, a caliph had been assassinated, but this time at the hands of fellow Muslims. Uthman's assassination was perhaps one of the biggest tragedies in the history of Islam. Although you might think that Uthman's assassination ended the unrest, the unrest was just getting started. When Uthman was killed, all remaining Umayyads fled from Medina, leaving the rebels with control over political affairs. The first battle the rebels had to decide was that of succession. Since most of the rebels respected Ali, Ali was the prime candidate. Although Ali was officially elected on June 17, 656, he was reluctant to become caliph and required some convincing. As you may recall, Talha and Azubair were initially supported, but now they promised to use violence against any individuals that did not recognize Ali as caliph. Thus, the reign of Ali ibn Abi Talib began with a rocky start. 
Ali was perhaps one of the most worthy Muslims to deserve the title of Caliph. He was Muhammad's cousin and one of the first people to convert to Islam, having done so when he was 10 or 11 years old. He married Muhammad's daughter, Fatima. During Muhammad's campaigns, Ali distinguished himself often as a standard bearer and sometimes even as a commander. Ali was praised for his legendary courage, for example at Badr, he killed a number of Quraysh warriors, and at Hunain, after most of Muhammad's troops had initially retreated, Ali was one of the few men who staunchly defended Muhammad. Ali was one of Muhammad's secretaries as well. It was said that he had a profound understanding of the Quran and had a gift for oratory. At times, however, he was rough and unsociable. In episode 2, when I discussed the foundations of Islam, there was a significant episode in Muhammad's life that I deliberately left out. On March 15, 632, when Muhammad was returning from his last pilgrimage, he stopped at a site called Ghadir Qum and addressed his followers. In his speech, called the Ghadir Sermon, he designated Ali as his successor and ordered the people to obey Ali. Yet Muhammad's speech would receive different interpretations. Some saw Ali as Muhammad's political successor, while others saw Ali merely as the future leader of Muhammad's family. That disagreement would create a division among the Islamic community a division whose effects are still felt today. Although Ali was finally the caliph, his accession would spark the first fitna, or civil war. Muawiyah, the governor of Syria, protested that Ali's election was invalid because only a minority of Muslims participated. Ali retorted that his election was legal because the election of a caliph was valid for the Muslims who were in Medina at the time. Immediately, Ali began undoing Uthman's policies by replacing Uthman's governors with his own governors, and distributing wealth to the populace. By now, news of Uthman's murder spread throughout the Islamic world, triggering intense backlash. Muawiyah accused Ali of being complicit with the murderers and demanded that they be brought to justice. Ali refused and began planning a campaign to bring Muawiyah into line, but an unexpected rebellion forced him to change his plans. Muhammad's last wife, Aisha, had originally supported the rebellion against Uthman, and as Uthman was being besieged, she performed Hajj. As she was returning to Medina, she received news of Uthman's murder. Shocked, she immediately headed back to Mecca and engaged in propaganda against Ali. Four months later, she was joined by Talha and Al-Zubair, who were sickened by the fact that Ali failed to take vengeance on Uthman's murderers. Meanwhile, Ali was moving north to secure Iraq, which meant taking control of the eastern half of the caliphate. While the insurgents occupied Basra, Ali entered Kufa. Some Kufans joined Ali as he marched towards Basra. At the same time, Aisha, Talha, and Azubair headed for Basra, since many people in Medina supported Ali. Ali reached a peaceful settlement with the Basrans, but then extremists from both sides engaged in a brawl and provoked a battle. This was the Battle of the Camel, fought on December 9th, 656. The battle received its name because Aisha herself rode into the battlefield on a camel. Unfortunately, thousands of Muslims, including Talha and Azubair, were slain, and Ali emerged victorious. Aisha was captured and returned to Medina under escort. In the aftermath of the Battle of the Camel, Ali made Kufa his capital, since most of Ali's supporters were in Iraq. In contrast, Ali lacked supporters in Egypt, allowing Amr ibn al-As to retake control of the province he once conquered. Ali hoped that his recent victory would earn Muawiyah's allegiance, so he started negotiations with Muawiyah. Muawiyah demanded that Ali surrender Uthman's assassins. Adding weight to his argument, Muawiyah cited a verse of the Quran that allowed a relative of someone who was slain unjustly to take vengeance. In the meantime, Muawiyah made it explicitly clear that he would not pay homage to Ali. 
Ali rejected Muawiyah's demand, stating that it was the people who murdered Uthman. With negotiations failing, both sides prepared for war. Ali and Muawiyah, both commanding armies tens of thousands strong, met on the plain of Sifin, near the modern city of Raqqa, in 657. Some skirmishes erupted, followed by a truce between June and July 657. Finally, battle was joined, lasting for a week, culminating on July 28, 657, in which Ali gained the upper hand. However, Muawiyah employed a clever trick. Advised by his ally, Amr ibn al-As, Muawiyah ordered his soldiers to hoist copies of the Quran on their lances. This famous gesture implied that Muawiyah wanted his dispute with Ali to be settled by consulting the Quran. Ali was convinced to accept this arbitration. A convention was drawn up at Sifin, stating that both sides would appoint one arbitrator each. Ali chose his ally, Abu Musa al-Ashari, while Muawiyah chose his ally, Amr ibn al-As. The arbitrators would announce their decision at Damad al-Jandal, halfway between Syria and Iraq, which were Muawiyah's and Ali's spheres of influence, respectively, in the presence of witnesses chosen by themselves. Both sides returned to their bases to await the verdict. However, while the arbitration was still occurring, certain individuals were enraged by the fact that this matter had to be arbitrated at all. They believed that it was improper for mortal men to reach a decision. They cited another verse in the Quran that stated that if one party of Muslims rebelled against the other, the rebels should be fought as long as necessary. Actually, Ali had appealed to this verse to portray his cause as legitimate, since he described his enemies as the rebellious party. Therefore, the dissidents argued that Ali should have continued to fight Muawiyah and that arbitration was a sin. When it was announced that Ali nominated Abu Musa al-Ashari as his arbitrator, about 3,000 to 4,000 dissidents left Kufa and hundreds more left Basra. They congregated at Narawan. These people would become known as the Khawarij or Karajites. The Karajites proclaimed that Ali had no claim to the caliphate, but they also condemned Uthman's conduct. They maintained the equality of all Muslims, including Muslims outside Muhammad's family or tribe. However, their tactics were extreme. The Karajites issued radical proclamations and committed acts of terror. They committed many murders, not even sparing women. They branded anyone who did not agree with them as their enemies. Yet their strength grew as they were joined by fanatics, non-Arabs, who were attracted by the belief that all Muslims were equal, joined the Karajites in large numbers. As this was happening, arbitrations were underway at Damat al-Jandal. Amr suggested that Muawiyah be in charge, but Abu Musa refused. Amr next proposed his son as a suitable candidate, but Abu Musa refused. Abu Musa offered Abdullah ibn Umar, the son of Umar, as a suitable candidate, but Amr refused. Eventually, a compromise was reached. In the end, the arbitrators agreed to depose both Ali and Muawiyah and left it to the Muslims to choose whoever they pleased. When the time came for both Amr and Abu Musa to speak, Amr allowed Abu Musa to speak first because Abu Musa was closer to Muhammad, but little did Abu Musa know that Amr had a trick up his sleeve. After Abu Musa announced their verdict, Amr publicly endorsed Muawiyah. It was a propaganda victory for Muawiyah, and in 658, the people of Syria started recognizing Muawiyah as their caliph. While Ali wanted his men to invade Syria, he was suddenly faced with the Karajite rebellion. Threatened by a war on two fronts, Ali decided that he first had to deal with the Karajite threat before marching on Syria. Ali dealt a crushing blow to the Karajites at the Battle of Narwan, fought on July 17, 658, killing their leader in the process, but his war against the Karajites was not over. Karajite survivors of the Battle of Narwan dispersed to various areas where they soon gained support. 
The rise of these Karajite factions affected Ali's standing, while Muawiyah was loved by his people. In July 658, Muawiyah captured Egypt, and two months later, Amr took over as Egypt's governor once again. Muawiyah followed up on this success by seizing Hejaz and Yemen, leaving Ali with only Iraq and Persia. Although Muawiyah failed to take Basra, he was able to launch raids into Ali's territory. Yet Muawiyah had problems too, as the Byzantines exploited the civil strife among the Muslims to invade Syria. However, the Byzantines stopped attacking after Muawiyah gave them money. In 660 or 661, Muawiyah succeeded in establishing a truce with Ali, allowing Ali to keep Iraq while Muawiyah kept Syria. In July 660, Muawiyah was formally recognized as caliph in a ceremony in Jerusalem. Shortly after this peace agreement, three Karajites, Abdurrahman ibn Maljam, Al-Barak ibn Abdullah, and Amr ibn Bakr met, and their conversation took an ugly turn. In order to avenge their loss at Narwan, ibn Maljam vowed to assassinate Ali, Ibn Abdullah vowed to assassinate Muawiyah, and Ibn Bakr vowed to assassinate Amr. They agreed on a certain date in which their plan would be carried out. As it turned out, only Ibn Maljam was successful. In July 661, as Ali stepped out of his house in Kufa to perform the dawn prayer, Ibn Maljam struck him with a poisoned sword. Thus, after a chaotic rule lasting four years and nine months, the 63-year-old Ali was martyred. After Ali's assassination, his supporters pledged loyalty to his son, Hassan, as caliph. Hassan was a devout Muslim who genuinely desired to avoid bloodshed. Hassan sent his intentions to make peace with Muawiyah, and the two began talks in Kufa, at the end of which Muawiyah was universally recognized as caliph. Muawiyah was also required to issue a general amnesty and give Hassan a cash settlement. In addition, Muawiyah was not allowed to name a successor during his reign and allow the Muslim community to choose the next leader upon his death. Hassan's reign lasted five to eight months, depending on the sources. Shia lore has it that in 669, Muawiyah secretly poisoned Hassan to stop any second thoughts. And so, after several years of civil war, Muawiyah emerged as the universally recognized caliph. But as a result of the first fitna, the Muslim world was divided. The Sunnis supported Muawiyah and his family, the Shias supported Ali and his family, and the Karajites supported neither. The Rashidun Caliphate was officially over, and in its place, Muawiyah founded the Umayyad Caliphate, which of course was named after his family. Next time, I'll discuss the reign of Muawiyah and its legacy on the Muslim world.